Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing our series um, in the book of Matthew. Forgive me, I don't have a page number. Could someone shout it out for me? That is the best shout out I have ever heard in my life. Thank you. 973. Yours was good as well. That's okay. Thank you. (laughs) 973. Matthew chapter 9. Now, here's what we've seen so far. Matthew chapter 8 verse 1 through to where we finished up last week at 9 chapter 8. It's basically a section where Matthew has chosen to deliver up for us, serve up for us, a whole bunch of miracles that serve to show, look at the authority of this man. He has authority over the natural realm. Shh, be still, he said to the wind and waves. And they shushed. And then we showed him his his authority over the spiritual realm, casting out demons from the two men in the Gadarenes. And then last week we showed this ultimate claim to deity, really, that Jesus was claiming for himself the authority, the right, to forgive sins when he said to the man, take up your mat and walk, take courage, my son, your sons are forgiven. But having closed that section off, he's beginning, Matthew begins a newer section, it will take us through to chapter 11 basically, where he's trying to show us what discipleship looks like. What does it look like to follow Jesus? How does it start? What does it look like when you're walking with Jesus in life and so on? So that's what he heads up for us, and that's what we're going to come to in these days ahead. But here we find a call to discipleship. And before we read Matthew 9 verse 9 and following, let's pray together. Our Father, your word provides many helpful images for us of what your word does for us. It lays before us in Hebrews an image of, water, of, of dry land that needs watered. And we thank you that for the image of your word being that water that, that, that floods the dry land, waters the soil, and produces growth. And produces fruit for your kingdom. And that's what we ask for today, even as we study this passage. Lord, we all need your help, whether preacher or listener, to understand what this says. So give us your grace in these moments, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. He told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come, not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. This is God's word. Michael uh, Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, 
hit the headlines a couple of weeks ago. He made a $50 million donation to a gun safety initiative because he believes that gun control in the United States isn't tight enough. He's desperate to do his part to prevent another Virginia Tech massacre or another Columbine tragedy, hence the donation. But listen to this. At a press conference that he arranged to announce his good deeds, Bloomberg proudly said, Man, I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. In other words, look at what I have done, everyone. Even God is going to look at what I have done. God will be so pleased with me for my good deeds. I am so in. Now, is that how it works? You do good deeds, you win God's approval, and you win eternal life. Is that the way it works? Well, to those of us who know our Bibles well, we can spot the error a mile off. But there are plenty of people in our city who think along the same lines as Mayor Bloomberg. I was speaking with a friend, Sally, a few months ago about grace. I was explaining that no one is made right with God by the good things they do, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. What? She said, I'm a good person. I've, I've gone to church my whole life. I've tried hard to be kind to everyone, but you're saying that that counts for nothing? Yes, I said. If you're looking to those things to make you right with God instead of looking to Jesus, then yes, they will count for nothing. So what about the murderer in prison, comes the objection. Well, if a murderer believes in Jesus, will he go to heaven? Oh yes, I said if he truly looks to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Well, Sally was utterly astounded at this. Like Bloomberg, she thought that she was so in with God because of the good things that she has done. And like the Pharisees in our text today, struggled to really understand how God could even stretch himself, in their view, to forgive the real sinners in this world. So brothers and sisters, if we want to know how to speak to people like Sally and address actually what is a common objection, then Matthew 9, 9 13 serves as well. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to take it in two parts. If you want to take notes, here are the two points. Number one, Jesus came to save sinners. And number two, Jesus came to rebuke self-righteousness. Here's point one, verses 9 to 11. Jesus came to save sinners. Now look with me, verse 9, and let's meet Matthew. Now, in, in everyone's eyes here, Matthew is the scum of the earth. As Jesus went on from there, verse 9 says, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, a tax man doesn't get good press nowadays. They're the butt of many jokes, sad to say. But it was worse in Jesus' day. These people were despised. To put it into perspective, people, people feared those who had leprosy. But they loathed those, hated, despised those who collected tax. Why? Well, they were seen as traitors. These were men who teamed up with the occupying Roman army by buying regional tax franchises. What they would do is they would bid for a tax franchise up front. They would say, okay, I'll give you a million pounds for the tax booth at Capernaum. 
And the Romans would say, that's great, give us a million pounds. So they would give them a million pounds. And then since Rome didn't have any kind of central bank to set tax rates, that would be left up to each individual tax collector. And this is where they came into their own. They didn't practice taxation, they practiced extortion. And they were robbers, effectively. That's why they were despised. They were also ostracized. You couldn't call one as a witness in a court of law. They weren't trustworthy. They weren't allowed in the temple or the synagogue, these places of worship in Israel. They were unclean. And you couldn't even invite one into your own house or go into one of their homes because that would then make you unclean. As a result, they just gathered around together with lots of seemingly unclean people in society's eyes. I was fascinated, fascinated to read, actually, and there's even a rule in the Mishnah, which is a Jewish holy book, it's part of their canon, that says, it is not permissible to lie, except a tax collector. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So apparently, if you lie to one of these guys, God will let you off because they deserve it. Isn't that incredible? Despised, ostracized, scum of the earth. Here's Matthew at his tax booth in Capernaum. In all likelihood, he's based by the Sea of Galilee, charging VAT at 40% on fish. He probably knows Peter and Andrew. This is where they were called from, remember, that's their hometown. But he's definitely heard of Jesus. Everyone in Capernaum had. It wasn't a big place. And remember, Jesus had already done some amazing things there. We've seen this in chapter 8 and 9 already. He had healed the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law. News had spread about him and crowds had gathered around him. Crowds so big that Jesus would actually try and escape them by going across the lake to another place. It's because everybody knows him. Then on his return to Capernaum, Jesus heals the paralytic, as we saw last week, claiming the powers of God for himself when he said, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. The man got up and walked. There is no question. News of that spread throughout Capernaum and beyond. Now, I wonder if on reflect, I wonder if Matthew heard about that. I wonder if Matthew thought to himself, wow, imagine saying that to a paralytic. I wonder if he ever thought, I wonder what Jesus would ever say to me. I wonder if there's any hope for a despised and ostracized sinner like me, where the paralytic would have been considered ostracized. Well, he's not left to wonder. In verse 9, Jesus comes right up to Matthew and says, follow me. What does that mean? It's a call to discipleship. Now, by all, now, I mean, that's surprising to the Bloombergs and the Sallies of this world. I mean, what an unlikely candidate for such a prime position of ministry training. By all appearances, Matthew had no real spiritual interest. You didn't see him at church. Matthew was a wealthy man who even just, he hung around. He didn't really hang around with lots of other wealthy people, you know, the, kind of, the, the elite in society, the intelligentsia and so on. No, with his money, he wasn't hanging around at the Sheraton Spa. He was more likely to be across the road at one of the show bars. It's the kind of guy he is. And people in our city might well have written Matthew off. Think about some of your own friends. Think about some of the conversations you maybe had in the last week or two or month or two. What constitutes the scum of the earth to them in this city of Edinburgh? Who do they speak about with a bit of disdain 
and superiority. Those are the benefits cheat. The drug dealer. The heroin addict shoplifting to feed a habit. The alcoholic. The pimp. The teenagers who terrorize the city, vandalize things, and scare old people. Who's the scum of the earth in the minds of our friends? Well, we know that Jesus is in the business of transforming lives, of reaching down into the gutter in order to pull people out of it. And actually, we must help our friends to see that. We can take them to Matthew chapter 9 and say, let me show you what Jesus says to a man who is as despised and ostracized as the benefits cheat or the heroin addict. We can take them to Matthew 9 and show them what Matthew did. Matthew, look with me, got up and followed him. How can this be? This is an incredible thing to see. Oh, it's grace, isn't it? Matthew is a sinner who is saved by grace. It's grace that gives a person the ability to respond to the call of Jesus to follow him. No believer in this room would be here were it not for God's grace. Irrespective of how decent or otherwise our life looked before Jesus introduced himself to us. So Matthew proves for us in the first instance that salvation cannot be by works. I mean, he hadn't done anything to show that he was worthy of a call to discipleship. There's nothing in here that says that he's impressed Jesus. There's no kind of heartwarming, self-made man story. He didn't clean himself up, don a suit, present himself before Jesus, a wee five-minute presentation on taxation, and say, I'm worthy to be called your disciple. That's not what happened at all. It's only grace that enables us to obey the call of the Son of God to follow him. And knowing what we know of the requirements of salvation throughout the scripture, we know that Matthew must have been under conviction of sin. He must have known sorrow over it. He must have known that the life he was living wasn't right. And at the call of Christ, he decides to leave behind the old way of life, to learn from Jesus, to imitate Jesus joyfully taking on his way of life, a way of life which, as he will see, involves self-denial and taking up of a cross. And that's what Jesus calls everyone to do. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you knew this about God. As you look upon this picture of him saving a man who was effectively a scumbag, the scum of the earth, That God's love is so immense that it embraces even the worst of sinners. That Jesus' blood is so wonderful that as he sheds it on the cross, it cleanses even the filthiest of sinners. And that the Holy Spirit, so generous in himself, he awakens even the deadest of sinners like Matthew. I hope you would see, even through a text like this, that if you have any kind of weight of conviction on your sin and think, I don't know if God could love me because of the things that I have done, Friend, please understand this from Matthew's example. Your sinfulness is not a reason to shrink back from God, but to come to God for forgiveness. And church family, we too must be careful. We don't make the mistake of our friends and judge people according to our views of different levels of sinfulness. We must be careful not to make false assessments about 
who may or may not receive the gospel that we share. No, we must share the good news of the forgiveness of sins that is available through faith in Jesus Christ indiscriminately. Even, did I say it, facing the challenge to reach beyond who we might normally like to reach in order to share the gospel with them. Well, the Bible tells us that when one sinner repents, there is a celebration in heaven. Well, Matthew decides to host his own celebration on earth. And he invites his friends, more tax collectors and sinners, as they are called. He wants to introduce them to Jesus. And what a great example to us. This is what we do, isn't it? We believe the good news and straight away we want to tell people all about it. Do you not remember that when you first became a Christian? You're like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. I've got to tell people. I remember being so excited about hearing the good news of the gospel that I would go and share it with people who had played a part in leading me to Christ. Did you know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Yeah, Liam, I, did, I told you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, go and tell that guy over there. You know, it's, we're excited. We're thrilled by the way the gospel grips our hearts and to think, he loves me. He died for me. And yet, how many of us is it our experience that as time has passed, that excitement has waned? How long have you been a Christian? You still as excited as you were back then? Pray that God would revive our hearts. Look who gate crashes the party. Verse 11. Pharisees. That's how you should say Pharisees. Pharisees. <laughs> now ask any man on the street in Capernaum, who is most likely to be in with God? You point. Pharisees. They are. These were the Bible guys. The theologians of the day. Do you know how the Pharisees came about? They link it back to the time of Ezra, uh, back in the Old Testament times, when, when they were back from exile, they were trying to revive the land. Now, even in those times, what was happening was the, the religious priests of the day, the ministers of the day, if you like, they weren't very good at teaching God's word. They weren't very good at living out God's word. And so the, the sect of the Pharisees was formed, and they, they kind of took it on themselves to be the most diligent students of God's word ever, to memorize it. And what they would do was they would, they would build a hedge around it. They would be the defenders of it. They would protect it. And they would make sure that the people around them, God's people in Israel, were very well taught. It kind of sounds quite a lot like what we expect an elder to do nowadays. So you might think that when Jesus the Messiah turns up calling sinners to follow him and they see someone like Matthew leave his old scumbag way of life behind to follow Jesus, you might think they would be delighted, but they're not. And here's why. Despite the noble beginnings of the Pharisees, they ended up like Meryl Bloomberg. They thought that they were made right with God by their good works. They looked at their studiousness they looked at their obedience to all the different parts of the law and they said, man, I am so in. I am in. It's not even close. <laughs> it is not up for debate. And they're like Sally. They had divided the world into good people and bad people. They thought bad people commit big sins and are hated by God, like Matthew. Good people might commit little sins, but their good deeds carry far more weight with God, so they're okay, like the Pharisees. 
And here they are in verse 11, asking one of the most arrogant questions ever asked. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're asking this from the threshold of the door. They won't go in. No, that would make them unclean. They're not even addressing Jesus. They don't even consider him to be worthy of being a teacher. They say, your teacher. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the only way you can ask that question is if you don't consider yourself to be a sinner, right? Why are you hanging about with them, Jesus? You're making yourself unclean. You should be clean, like us. Surely if you're claiming to be the divine son of man, as you are by your healing of the paralytic, you'd be separating yourself off from these people and eating nice people like us. With eating. Eating with. It's an important word. Eating with people like us. And let's face it, if Jesus didn't eat with sinners, he'd be eating alone, right? So what will Jesus say to them? And here's where we see our second point, Jesus rebuking the self-righteous. First of all, Jesus underlines that he is exactly where he ought to be. We see verse 12. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Can you imagine the outcry tomorrow if there were no surgeons at the royal No doctors at sick kids. No medics at the Western. Can you imagine, there are lots of sick people still there, but no doctors. Can you imagine if all the doctors had set up base in the health spas and health clubs around the city? There you are running on your treadmill at uh, David Lloyd Gym. And a man with a stethoscope comes up to you around his neck and sees Dr. Love. And he says, excuse me, sir. Um, do you need to see me today? You'd be like, what would you, say to, what would you say to someone like that? You'd say, no, I'm perfectly fine. If I need to see you, I'll make an appointment to come and see you. That's kind of how it works. By the way, why are you not at the hospital or at your clinic seeing sick people? Why are you not there? That's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. It's an absurd picture. But just as doctors give themselves to helping sick people, Jesus, the great physician, gives himself to helping sinful people. He's telling us that he has come for those who are aware of their sickness and aware of their need for help. That is their sin. He's come to those who know what it's like to be crushed by the weight of guilt and shame and have found no reprieve in the things of the world. To those whose consciences are heavy. He's come to make them well. Now, there's an underhand rebuke here of the Pharisees, of course, in this comment. They're the ones who claim to know God's word inside out. They claim to know how his Messiah will act when he comes. And yet, they would rather separate themselves off from sinners, quarantine the filthy people of society in a, in a ghetto of sorts. It's as crazy as the doctor at the health club. But this is why Jesus secondly adds his rebuke in verse 13. Go and learn what this means, he says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now remember what I said earlier about the Pharisees. The students, they knew everything. I mean, they basically memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They knew it all inside out. But to say to a Pharisee, go and learn. Oh, that was was a cracker. 
I mean, this is exactly the kind of phrase even that Pharisees would use to tell off a little student who, had, who was saying something that demonstrated they hadn't quite listened, they hadn't quite grasped something even so elementary, something so basic. No, 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 no. Go and learn. I mean, that's like saying to a theologian, yeah, go, and, go and learn, go and have a wee look at that verse again, then come back to me in a wee second, Mr. Carson, you know. Uh, go, and, go and check what that says, and then come back, and then we'll have a chat, all right. You know, that's what it's like. It was, a, it was something to say. But what lesson does he actually want them to learn? What, what elementary thing is he wanting them to grasp? What have they missed? Well, Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. You don't need to turn to it. I'll read it to you. Hosea 6, verse 6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. That's what Jesus is trying to highlight for these guys. He's trying to communicate to them that their heart is not in this. That they might be doing really well bringing all the trappings of the sacrifices, but actually they're not doing it for the right reasons. That's why Jesus is trying to help these self-righteous Pharisees to see this. They're just like the godless people of old Israel. And I wonder if that might describe any of us here today. I'd be worried if any of us were falling into Sally's error. God is not pleased with you because you come to church, listen to a sermon, read the Bible. If you do these things out of a mere routine rather than love for God. Or if you do these things in order to kind of prevent a CV of your achievements before God so that he might say, man, you are so in. No, all of these things are good and we encourage everyone in our church family to, to do all of them. They are means of grace to us. They are ways that God blesses us as we, and ways to worship God. But we mustn't look to our attendance record to save us. Because it won't. No, the whole point, go and learn, is to say you've missed the point in terms of the things that you be, should be concerned about. You should be concerned about mercy. You should be the ones that are ministering to these people, the tax collectors and the sinners. But the Pharisees are simply proving they're like Sally, self-righteous, dividing the world into big sinners, little sinners. And they think they're fine. The whole point of this Hosea 6 passage is to say, don't look to your own sacrifices for a right standing with God. There is only one sacrifice that you look to, and that's Jesus on the cross. For he taught and claimed, and after he died and rose again, his church, his people, taught and claimed that his death was a death in our place. And that the only way to God is through the only one who has ever achieved a life of 100% perfection, total sinlessness that's Jesus Christ it's that sinlessness that qualified him to be our ultimate sacrifice on the cross you might have heard Jesus being referred to at times as the lamb of God well that's what it means he was the sacrifice in our place and when his blood was shed well when you put your faith and trust in that blood we have forgiveness of sins he dealt with all your filthiness on the cross and amazingly, we are credited with all his righteousness through faith. Isn't that incredible? Nothing you can do but come to Jesus.
It's sinners that Jesus came to save. Verse 13b says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, Jesus says. Now, don't misunderstand this. Jesus is not saying that Pharisees are actually righteous or healthy. After all, he's just accused them of being as godless as old Israel in Hosea's time. But they're just as sinful as everyone else. The problem is they don't see it. They see themselves as righteous before God, and that's what Jesus is addressing. So that's why he's saying to them, if you see yourself as righteous already, then you will not have ears to hear good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you will have nothing to turn from in order to turn to God. If you see yourself as right with God already because of the things you've achieved, then you have no need for the Son of God to die on a cross for your sin. But that is the only way. That is the way that God has chosen. And that is exactly what they need. You see what Jesus highlights in this? The truth is, we're all like Matthew. We're all scumbags in the sight of God. We're all sick because of sin. And the only remedy is the love and the grace and the mercy of the one who, of the one who accepts the title friend of sinners. Jesus Christ. The one who will not only number himself gladly with sinners in his life, but number himself gladly with sinners in his death. As Isaiah 53 says, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgression. Irony of ironies in this text. Matthew, the scumbag sinner, goes home right with God. The religious types go home with God's wrath remaining in them for they have not believed in the only Son of God whom he sent. So next time that we hear friends say, I've done this and I've done this. I'm so in with God. Tell them about Matthew and the Pharisees. Take them to Matthew 9, 9 to 13. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you thought, man, I thought I was in. I thought I was right with God. I thought it was all about being a good person. I thought it was all about, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to stand before God and he's got these big scales. And on one side, all the good things I've done, are, they're going to be put there. And, and all the bad things I've done are going to be put there. And, and we're, it's going to be weighed up. And if, if it tips in my balance, then I'm in. That's not how it works. You have no need for Jesus. You have no need for a cross. And yet that is the way, that, the only single way that, Jesus, that God has determined that we might have peace with him. And forgiveness of sins. And the only determining factor in whether or not you... Enter the kingdom of God through faith. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. You can confess your sin right now. You can, like Matthew, leave your old life of sin behind and follow Jesus. Take up his life. Deny yourself. Take up his cross. Be willing to live just as he lived in obedience to him. And you'll truly be his disciple, his follower. And then you can say, man, I am so in, but it's not by anything I've done. Brothers and sisters, these questions are out there all the time. People think these things all the time. Take them to Matthew 9, 9 to 13. 
Take them to Romans chapter 3 and tell them there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Tell them that no one is declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through, this, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And then tell them, but a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through what? Faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood to be received by, what's the word? Faith. Faith. So we are not to go out of here today being self-congratulatory. We are to be thankful Our redemption was won for us by someone else, Jesus our King. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much.